them. I welcome each of you here this morning. Thanks to our youth department for their kindness. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. What an awesome Bible study this morning. I enjoyed that immensely. Brother David has always done a tremendous job. I want to just say thank you so much to all of you who have been expressing in such a beautiful way your appreciation for our ministry. And throughout this month, we appreciate it so very much. You can't begin to imagine how torn I am every day for having to be gone so much. And the anxiety I face from day to day, but it is what it is and it has to be what it has to be until the Lord changes things. But I want you to know that my thoughts are with you every moment that I'm gone, wishing I could be here. And someday that will happen in the Lord's time that will transpire. But until then, my heart is with High Point Church each and every day I'm gone. Amen. Either Brother David and I done such an awesome job last week, or Bishop Goldsbury done such an awesome job Wednesday night that a lot of folks decided they didn't need church today. That's the way I'm going to look at it anyway, okay? I invite your attention this morning to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I would like to read in your hearing as we get into the word of the Lord this morning. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, penned these words. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we are all, we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you again today for this privilege and opportunity that we have been granted to come before you and before this, your people, and minister once again. Lord, as always, I pray today that I would just become transparent before this congregation and before you, and that, Lord, they would see you and your word as the ministry goes forth here today, and we would receive what you have for us into the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. 
and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. Shake hands with someone close by and tell them, I must keep reaching higher. I must keep reaching higher, and you may be seated. The songwriter said, my heart has no desire to stay where doubts arise and fears dismay. Though some may dwell where these abound, my prayer, my aim is higher ground. Amen. My prayer, my aim is higher ground. On June the 1st of the year of 1965, there was a 13-foot boat. Now, for you mariners, that's not a very big boat. 13 foot. Bishop had me out one time on a 28 foot, and I thought that was a monster. Until I went on my first cruise and got on one of those 900 footers, and then I found out that was a little one. But this 13 foot boat slipped quietly out of Falmouth, Massachusetts. Its destination was none other than Falmouth, England, across the Atlantic Ocean. Quite a hike. I should say, quite a row. It would be the smallest craft ever to make such a voyage. Its name, you guessed it, Tinkerbell. Appropriate. Its pilot, a copy editor from the Cleveland Plain Dealer newspaper named Robert Manry, who felt that 10 years at the desk was enough boredom for anyone. Manry was afraid not of the ocean, but of all the people who would try to talk him out of the trip. And as a result of his fear, he only shared his plans and his ideas with a few of his relatives and his wife, Virginia, his greatest source of support. Now on this trip, imagine this if you can kind of wrap your mind around this, he spent harrowing nights of sleeplessness trying to cross shipping lanes without getting run over. I mean, a 13-foot boat up against a monster freighter would just be no match at all. Weeks at sea caused his food to become tasteless. Loneliness led to hallucinations. His rudder broke three times. Storms swept him overboard. Had it not been for the rope around his waist, he would have never been able to pull himself back on board. I just can't even imagine. Finally, after 78 days, two and a half months, 78 days alone at sea, he sailed into Falmouth, England. Or Falmouth, England, I guess they would pronounce it. During those nights at the tiller, he had fantasized about what he would do once he arrived, if he arrived. He expected to simply check into a hotel, eat a dinner alone the next morning, see if perhaps the Associated Press might be interested in buying his story, or hearing, at least hearing his story. What a surprise, what an amazement to him Word had spread far and wide about this crazy man who donned a 13-foot boat to sail the Atlantic Ocean. To his amazement, 300 vessels with horns blasting 
escorted Tinkerbell into the port. And 47,000 people stood screaming and cheering him to the shore. Now I said all of that to say this. One of the greatest themes throughout biblical history and scripture is perseverance. And let me tell you, it took perseverance on the part of Mr. Manry to do what he done and to accomplish what he accomplished. No matter how great our calling, no matter how great our talent, no matter how great our cause or our goal, without perseverance, we won't make it. Amen. Therefore, James writes in his general epistle, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Amen. Now, I have lamented for many years as a pastor and a minister in general, that individually and collectively we are living far below our spiritual means. I still stand on that premise today. There's so much more for us to experience and realize in the realm of our spirituality and our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You see, we must understand human worth and divine destiny. You see, the creature that God created in man is enabled to respond to him. Amen. Man becomes a responsible being, if you will. He is able to qualitatively a different sort of being endowed with ability and a freedom to fellowship and participate in the life of God. What a thought. That we have the freedom to fellowship and participate in the life of God. You see, this is not the freedom of individual autonomy which denies dependence on God. Nor is it freedom behind the fall of man as in the case of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were given the freedom to respond to God following their disobedience. Remember, God asked Adam, where are you? Normally, you would have been out here to meet me, Adam. But today, you're not. They, they were given the they were freedom to respond. But see, sin confuses and distorts our humanity and obstructs the emergence of true personhood by interrupting our fellowship with God. Simply said, sin interrupts our fellowship with God. Amen? However, when the power of sin is broken by accepting Jesus Christ's vicarious act of obedience at Calvary, grace is revealed and the true order of humanity is restored. I've often said that God is bringing humanity full circle back to the relationship he once had with Adam and Eve in the garden. It is in the crucified humanity of Jesus Christ that we find the true humanity intended in creation. Jesus came to authenticate humanity in order for us to be in full communion with God. 
And these truths are summarized by the Apostle Paul who says that by nature, the human condition of mankind is dead. It's enslaved. And it's condemned. But then, by the grace of God in Christ Jesus and His divine compassion, man is saved and made alive, raised and made to sit with Him in eternal fellowship and purpose. Amen. He has made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So let's consider for a moment the can-do spirit. The word of the Lord records in Numbers chapter 14, verse 24. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. Now you see, Caleb was not into this safe living kind of mode. He, he wasn't one that, you know, got in the comfort zone and hung out there. As a young man, he came back from the promised land and stood with the minority and announced this, with God on our side, we will take the promised land. And it didn't end there. His can-do spirit lived way beyond that. At the age, at the year, at, at 85 years young, he was still slaying giants and climbing mountains. Now, I don't know how I'll feel when I turn 85. If the Lord allows me to live that long, I hope I feel as good as I do today. I know, what's the odds, huh? But uh, here's this 85-year young man, and he was still slaying giants and claiming mountains. And that's because he had a different spirit. He wasn't a go-with-the-flow-except-the-status-quo kind of guy. He just wouldn't fall in line with the crowd. Richard Elver writes, Safe living generally makes for regrets later on. We are all given talents and dreams. Go like this. Sometimes the two don't seem to match. But usually we compromise both before ever finding out. And later on we find ourselves looking back long into that time when we should have chased our true dreams and our true talents for all that they were worth. So don't let yourself be pressured into thinking that your dreams or your talents aren't prudent. They were never meant to be prudent, just for a word of advice. They were meant to bring joy and fulfillment into our lives. Amen? Think about this for a moment. If a caterpillar just decides he's going to refuse to get in its cocoon, it'll never transform. It will be forever a worm. It will be forever relegated to crawling on the ground, even though it had the potential to fly. We have the potential to fly. We need to get in the Spirit's cocoon and let Him transform us to what He has designed us to be. Amen. So let me ask you this. What do you believe God's called you to do? All the minds are just racing, aren't they? Just do it. 
Just do it. God's not limited by our IQ. He's limited by our I will. I said he's not limited by our IQ. If he was, I, if he was, I wouldn't be up here. I don't say that disparagingly, but when I started this, I wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. He's, it's not about our IQ. He's limited by our I will. When he asked Isaiah, who will go for us? I will. Amen. God's not limited. The poet said, if you think you are beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you'd like to win, but you think you can't, it's almost certain you won't. Life's battles don't always go to the stronger or the faster individual. But sooner or later, the individual who wins is the individual who believes they can. The spirit of Caleb is the can-do spirit. Let me ask you, do we really have it? Do we really have that can-do spirit? You see, here's the thing. We must keep climbing. The songwriter said, I want to live above the world. Though Satan's darts at me are hurled. For faith has caught the joyful sound, the song of saints on higher ground. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippian church writes, verses 13 through 14 of chapter 3, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Paul, in all of his brilliance, in all of his eloquence, and all of his vast array of knowledge and theological things said, I, whoa, I have not yet apprehended. Or in other words, I've not arrived yet. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, he said, I'm pressing, I'm climbing, I'm pressing every step of the way. I'm pressing toward the mark or toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. He just said that halfway up the Swiss Alps, now, I've never been there, but this is what I read. This is what I hear. That there's a popular rest house. And it's a good day's climb from the bottom to the top, wherever the base camp is, to the actual summit of the mountain. They say it's a real good day's climb. But you can usually get to this rest house by lunchtime. It's kind of a cabin-type thing, you know, a lodge-type situation, scenario, you know, where they've got the fireplace going, maybe two or three fireplaces going. It's warm and it's cozy. And and, uh, and it's there, as they say, it's where you separate the men from the boys. Y'all have heard that, that cliche, you know, where we separate the men from the boys or where the rubber meets the road and so forth. They say that when some amateur climbers feel the warmth of the fire and smell the good cooking, they say to their companions, you know what, I think I'll just wait here while you go on to the top. Good place for me to wait. 
you know, after an hour or two there, they've convinced themselves they're not too sure-footed now. You, you know how it is with amateurs, you know. They've decided, yeah, I don't. And when you come back down, we'll, we'll get together here again, and I'll join you, and we'll go back down to the base camp together. They say that a glaze of satisfaction comes over them as they sit by the warmth of the fire, and they sip on hot chocolate and coffee in the welcoming environment. So nice and warm in there, and it had been so cold for the first half of the day coming up that mountain. But then they say about 3.30 in the afternoon, everything changes. They start looking toward the mountaintop. They can see the summit from where they're at. As their friends announce by radio that they have reached the summit, suddenly the atmosphere in the rest of the house changes and they think, if only I would have kept climbing. I would be one of those now seen back down that I've made it to the summit. How often do we do that spiritually? find ourselves wrapped up in our comfort zone. We like things the way they have become. We have arrived to a certain juncture in our spiritual walk in our church, uh, individually and collectively, where we kind of like things the way we are. We're large enough to get by. We're large enough to do... But yet we kind of like this small and gathered atmosphere. You know, we... Everybody knows everybody, and we're just kind of comfortable there. I've even been told I like things the way they are. I don't. Let's go on record. I don't. Because I have a bigger vision. I see a summit. I see a mountaintop that High Point Church needs to reach. Amen. I don't want to be down here looking up when somebody else, because there's going to be a glorious church when Jesus returns. There, there's going to be a church propagating the gospel. There's going to be a church that's alive and well. I want it to be us. On the summit top of spirituality, declaring the grace of Almighty God. Amen. You see, there are three things that can cause us, at least three things. There's more, I know, but for the sake of this discussion this morning, there's at least three things that will cause you to lose sight of your God-given purpose and goals. You heard me preach this three years ago about we all have a purpose. We all have a God-given goal. We all have a God-given purpose. Amen. The first thing is weariness. We become weary. We oftentimes think we're the only one doing anything. Oftentimes we get the feeling, well, I'm the only one praying. It seems like I, you know, I. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 32, I, I, I was looking at this passage and something hit me out of that that's never hit me in all of my years in ministry. Now, I've read this passage time, time, and time again. 
I've, I've used this for a text time and time and time again. But I want you to notice something. Here's what Jesus was. He was talking to Simon Peter. Now, Peter has become very boisterous at this particular junction in our relationship. Jesus has been talking about Calvary. He's been talking about going away. He's been talking about suffering death. And Peter says, oh, let me tell you, wherever you go, I'm going. I'm not leaving your side. If you go to death, I go to death. If they stone you, they're going to have to stone me. And Jesus kind of subtly and in his very charming and eloquent way said, Duh, Peter, listen, listen to me. Listen to me, son. Satan has asked for you. Whoa, 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 wait, wait, whoa. Yeah, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. In other words, he's going to put you on the sifting board and he's going to shake you, Peter, till there's nothing left. The chaff is all gone and all that's left is the realism and your trust and your faith in me. Now watch this. This gets better. He went on to say, now he didn't tell Peter I was going to refuse to let him have you. No. He would have thought he would have. He would have thought his next words would have been, but I told him to leave you alone. No, Jesus said, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. What? You have prayed for me that my faith would not... Why don't you just tell him to buzz off? You just tell him to leave me alone. No, 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 Peter. I, I, I'm praying that your faith will not fail. Now watch this. And Jesus went on to say, And when you have returned to me, he knew Peter was going to deny him. He knew Peter was going to turn his back. He knew he was going to be on saint and sifting board. And he was going to be shaken till there was nothing left to shake loose. And he said, and when you turn around and you come back to me, strengthen your brother. Oh, I could preach for days right there. When you come back to me, strengthen your brother. We all have to come the failing faith syndrome. We all have to overcome that. There are times when our faith is not going to be what it should be. Go like this. We've all experienced it. It doesn't make you a bad person. The Apostle Paul said it this way. Let us not grow weary in well-doing or while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. There was coming a day when Peter was going to stand up like the tower of strength that God designed him to be. He was going to stand up before the world and declare the glorious message of grace in Jesus Christ. Amen. The second thing is fear. Some days the mountain just seems too high. That does. I'll be, I'll be honest enough to admit to you, there's some days I ask myself, are you really sure 
And oftentimes in that scenario, we're tempted to give up. Then there's a voice that whispers in my spiritual ear that so much like Joshua 1 and 9 that says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and be of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Some days that's the only thing that keeps me moving. So don't let fear, don't let fear keep you from going to the summit. The third thing that I want to mention is comfort. Comfort. We like comfort. And certainly there's nothing wrong with that. I like my big recliner. Well, by the time I get home Friday night, I sink in that recliner after some of the weeks I have. It's like, honey, do you know how good it is to be home? The comfort and the pleasure of home, the security of home, seeing my wife and my granddaughter, knowing that family's around. And, but comfort can destroy us spiritually. I'm reminded of a passage that's found in the book of Amos. Amos was quite a powerful and profound prophet. His book's not all that long, but when he talked, everybody listened, even E.F. Hutton. It says this in Amos chapter 6 and verse 1, Woe! Now when a passage starts out with woe, you better know that the hammer's about to fall. You better know that when the Bible and the word of the Lord comes through a prophet and he says, Woe, you better pay attention. He says, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion or who have become complacent in Zion. Now, I understand theologically he was talking to Israel, but it is also applicable for today. He says, woe to you that have become complacent in Zion. We just got in the comfort zone and we love it. Who? We know that every week, Brother David's going to get up here on Sunday morning. He's going to teach a fabulous Bible study. We know that the worship team is going to get up here and they're going to bless us in song. Even when they're having a bad day, it sounds good to most of us. Amen? And we know that, you know that pastor's going to get up here and he's going to fumble around and do something, you know. We become comfortable in that. We know after a little while, after about 35, 40 minutes of his rambling on and sometimes having trouble staying on course with his notes, he's going to have everybody stand and we're going to sing a course or two and dismiss and go home. But woe to you who are at ease in Zion. Zion represented... The house of God. 
It represented God's presence. You see, conflict... Oh, this is tough for us to hear, but I've got to say it. Conflict and hard times keep us on our toes, and they keep us on our knees. I'm telling you right now, without prayer, halfway through the week, I wouldn't make it. It keeps us. Conflict and hard times keeps us on our toes and keeps us on our knees. However, too much comfort can seduce us into settling short of our goal. Amen? So we must keep climbing. We must keep climbing. Caleb stood there and said, Moses said, I could have this mountain for my inheritance. Now somebody send a messenger to the top and tell those folks they can either get off voluntarily or I'm coming up to throw them off. And if I come up there and a victim, it's going to get rough. I'm almost done. We need to be challenged to reach higher. We are at... My wife and I are at our three-year anniversary here as a pastor of High Point Church. I believe that's right, isn't it? Yeah, it's three years, right? Yeah, that's correct. And I want to challenge you today to retire. The truth is, certain people tend to stoke the fires within us to be all we can be. You ever notice that? There are certain people you can keep company with that are just... Gives you the I want to sort of attitude. Well, you know, they're a lot like me, and look what they've done. Oh, man. So when you find that type of individual, feed off of them. I've heard it said several times in, in uh, several of the politicians in their, na- national, in, their, in their national speaking in the last few months that we are the company we keep. You heard that? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, probably some truth to that. When you have little or no water in the well, be willing to draw from theirs if need be. Amen. There's folks that are just positive. Men. You see, Elisha spent many years living in Elijah's shadow. But Elisha saw it as a privilege, not a put down. Elisha didn't go around thinking, I'm so tired of being this guy's servant. All I do is wash the clothes and do the dishes and run here, go there, do this, do that. I'm, I'm so, you know what? If he'd get out of the way, I could do just as good as he does. But he never had that attitude. Never. Elisha was willing to set up tents. He was willing to cook meals. He was willing to wash clothes, to run errands, because it meant 
he would experience firsthand some of the greatest miracles in biblical history. He wanted to be there for it. And as a result, Elijah asked Elisha one day, and Elijah knows it's about time for the Lord to come and get him. And he knows that his race is about run. I don't know whether he comprehended at that point just how how he was going to be taken out. But he asked Elisha, he said, before I go away, Elisha, it's about time. I know we've become good buds and we've been together for a while and we've become very close. It's about time for me to go. What is it that you would like for me to leave behind for you? What, what would you want me to give you? What can I do for you before my departure? Elisha, with his eyes set on the summit, said, I want a double portion of the spirit that you have. I don't want your house. I don't want your car. I don't want the limo. I don't want the farm. You just keep all, it's Elijah, you just give that to somebody else. All the servants, ah, give them to somebody else. You know what I want? I want a double portion of that spirit. Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And before His life was over. Elisha worked twice as many miracles as Elijah. Elijah was a great prophet. He was a great man of God that never saw death and was taken out of here. But Elisha worked twice as many miracles as Elijah. Now, please understand this you must have a foundation, and you can't build it without help. Let me close with this. Seeing God bless someone else, in my opinion, should challenge us to reach higher. I hear Brother Dave get up and teach like he did this morning. It challenges me to want to get better. Not out of jealousy. Not out of envy. but just surely out of challenging me to reach higher. That's what a teacher should do. That's what a pastor should do, a preacher should do, is challenge us to reach higher. Understand as well, this is not envy, just a strong desire to receive more. And you need to desire to receive more in your arena of goals and purpose and gifts. Amen? For an example, let's look at Hannah. Elkanah's wife. You remember Hannah? She wanted a child. And in order to stir her up, God used Peninnah, who was also married to the same man but able to bear children. They've done that back in those days. Now, I wouldn't advise it today. 
In fact, I strongly discourage it today. But Peninnah was also married to Elkanah. She was just having children one right after the other. The more Hannah saw Peninnah have children, the more she wanted her own. Because it was a disgrace back in these days for a woman not to bear a child. I mean, it was actually, she was actually scorned upon by society if she did not bear children. So she wanted a child of her own. Peninnah challenged her. And here's the thing. It caused Hannah to pray like she never prayed before. When finally she went, when her and Elkanah went up to Jerusalem to worship, Eli and Hopness and Phinehas was there, and she went into the house of the Lord and she was praying. She was so intently praying that her lips were moving and there was no sound. She had just gone in such a deep prayer. Eli thought she was drunk. She thought she'd been nipping on the bottle. When he confronted her, she said, no, no, no. You don't understand. I'm in an intercessory prayer. I'm going for the summit. Eli, a high priest, said, Be it according to your word. You see, that, my friends, is the right response. It wasn't that Hannah was jealous and didn't want to see Penanay have children. It was just that she wanted her own. And if seeing others succeed makes you want to sabotage their success, you will never be prosperous. I'm telling you that right now. Learn how to rejoice over the blessings of others and realize that the same God who blessed them can bless you and I. The same God that poured out His Spirit on the church at Pentecost will pour out His Spirit on the church today. If we're willing to persevere and get out of the Midway Lodge and get to the summit. Let their blessings challenge you and I to reach much higher. As you stand, the songwriter said, I want to scale the utmost height and catch a gleam of glory bright. But still I pray till heaven I found, Lord, lead me on to higher ground. Let's worship for a few moments.